All right, so today we are continuing our study in the book of Romans. Um, last, last week we covered verse 1, which is the, the first verse of the salutation of the introduction to the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul. So today we're going to finish the salutation, which goes all the way to verse 7. Okay, let's uh, please, if you're able, let's uh, rise and uh, pay attention to what the Word of God has to tell us this morning. Romans 1, starting in verse 1, the inerrant, infallible Word of God reads as follows. Paul, a servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace in apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for allowing us to continue the introduction to the book of Romans. Lord, this morning as we dig in, may you please allow us to understand by the power of your Holy Spirit, either for the first time or as a reminder of what your gospel is. We pray that your Holy Spirit may convict us, may give us understanding in order to have a changed life, Lord, a continual changing life that aligns to your purposes and to your word. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as we are going through basically the beginning of the book of Romans, I just want to encourage everyone to press forward, to become engaged in the text, to read at home the, the passage that is upcoming. Uh, this will greatly help and enhance our understanding. Um, related to that, I'll tell you a quick anecdote this week. On Wednesdays, my son has chapel at his school. He's in pre, uh, preschool. And every time I ask him, like, Ziggy, what did you learn in, pre in, uh, in chapel? And he almost never wants to tell me. He just wants to keep quiet. And he says he doesn't remember. So in order for me to motivate him to tell me, I told him, you know, Mommy and Daddy work really hard to send you to that school. So if you come back and you tell me that you got nothing, that you, you're not learning anything, that's not good. What do you think we should do? He thought about it for a little bit. And then he came back and he said, Daddy, you know what we should do? He's like, I should just never go to school again. <laughs> Problem solved, right? <laughs> you can see how his little mind is crafty and he works, right? And by nature and choice, he wants to pick the path of least resistance. Isn't that so with all of us, right? So the reason I say that as we engage in the book of Romans, my brothers, my sisters, press forward, engage in it, 
as we uh, speak in our fellowship, either at our lunches or through the week, ask each other, hey, what did you think of the sermon? Uh, how, how are you understanding the, the beginning of the book of Romans? Right? And, and not be like Zeke, saying, hey, I don't know. And the solution is maybe I just shouldn't go anymore. <laughs> right? Let us, uh, let us not take that, that path, but rather let's engage. So last time we studied the author, Paul. He identified himself as a servant, as one who was called to be an apostle, and as one who was set apart for the gospel. Thus far, we have the qualifications of the author. We saw how God can use a man who was an enemy of Jesus, convert him, change him, and then use him for the glory of Jesus. The key there was, the main takeaway, that God will call rebel sinners to himself and use them for his glory. So then, hopefully last week, and this past week, we went away thinking, has God called me? Is God using me to spread his gospel? Are my talents, my resources being used to glorify Jesus, just as Paul was? Now, the fact that God calls unworthy sinners to himself and makes them saints, that is good news. And it's part of why I've labeled this, the topic sermon for today, the second salutation part of Paul, but mainly good news for bad people. God turns sinners into saints. And this is exactly the message of the rest of of the salutation by Paul that we're going to study today. And in fact, it's a summary of what he's going to treat in the whole book of Romans. He gives us like a quick snapshot of what's it going to be about. The structure of his salutation is he identifies himself, his credentials. And then secondly, he tells us what his message is going to be about. And then lastly, he specifically tells us who he's addressing the letter to who he is, what his message is going to be, and who he's writing to. As we already covered who he is, right, last week, this week we're going to cover the two aspects of the summary of his message, which is the good news, and the subjects to whom he's addressing it to, who are sinners saved by grace. So let us dig right in. Paul's message, the good news. That's the content of this letter. First, we're going to see that the good news, the good news of Jesus as Savior, were actually not new in the sense that they were being told for the first time, but rather the gospel was foretold in the Old Testament. And this is what his introduction to the book of Romans is telling us. Let us read right there Romans 1 through 3. The first part of it, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So Paul is here is claiming that the gospel was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, that is the Old Testament. And we first see this even going back to Genesis chapter 3. When the fall of humanity occurs and the disobedience of our first fathers, Adam and Eve, 
lead to the fall of men. Sin enters the world. And in that, God promised that there would be one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Going back to then, we can see that a savior for those who have fallen has been promised. Now, Paul was an Old Testament scholar. A Pharisee of Pharisees. He very likely had the Old Testament memorized. Yet, get this, he was not aware that the gospel was preached in the Old Testament before he became a Christian. He was not aware that the gospel was preached, even though he very likely had the Old Testament memorized. So the key there is that one can be religious and not know Jesus. You can be religious and not know Jesus. There are religious people, just as Paul was a religious person, who don't know Christ and are on their way to condemnation. Unless God intervenes, as he did with Paul then, for that self-righteous Pharisee, unless God intervenes in our lives, we are lost. And that is a clear warning for us today. Now Paul realizes, now that Christ has saved him, appeared to him, called him to be an apostle, now he realizes that the good news were actually foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament. Let us take a quick look at where those are. They're all over the Old Testament, but I chose a few of them. Old Testament prediction, Christ would be born in Bethlehem, right? Perfect for the season. We sang today, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, it reads, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The New Testament fulfillment is that Jesus, in fact, was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.1 Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So there is one sense in which Jesus was foretold. The good news was foretold in the Old Testament, and Paul alludes to that. Secondly, another Old Testament prediction. Christ would be preached and he would preach the good news to the world himself. Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2. It reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So there, there's this incredible God-like figure that is being referenced to in the book of Isaiah. What is the fulfillment? It's a famous passage in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, this is Jesus at the synagogue with the religious Jewish people. And it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, that is to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Typically, a rabbi would come and then he would explain what the text means. It is realized that Jesus, coming before those rabbis, Pharisees, experts in the Old Testament, Jesus is telling them, the scripture that you so much value in the Old Testament is fulfilled today. I am he. You see the implication of that claim. So here then, just a couple of examples of many that the good news were foretold in the Old Testament by the, by the Old Testament prophets. Secondly, we see that Jesus, the Son, is divine. He is deity. He is the God-man. Romans 1, the second part of verse 3 to verse 4. Again, this is in our text today, and talking about Jesus, it says, Who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we have it, Jesus was fully human, that is, He was descended from David. His lineage, that is, where He came from in the flesh, was from King David. We have that Old Testament prediction in 2 Samuel 7, 8, and verse 12. It reads, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and will establish his kingdom. So here is the promise of the descendant of David that is going to come. This is confirmed, as we just read in Romans 1.3, that he's going to be descendant from David according to the flesh. Now this term, son of David, not only implies that he's descended from David, but also has a divine connotation, meaning that this is someone who is highly and uniquely anointed by God. This is to be the Messiah, the anointed one. There were some in the time of Jesus that were aware of what that title meant. The descendant from King David, son of David, who would come to be God, God's Messiah, God in flesh, God the Savior. We see that in the passages in the New Testament where that title is given to Jesus. Let us take a quick look where that's at. Matthew 15, 22 says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Then again, Matthew 20, verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. One more, 
Mark 10, 46 and 47. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we see that these people had been aware that truth of who Jesus was had been revealed to them. Interestingly, that in this passage as we read, three of those people were blind. Meaning that those who actually saw Jesus, the vast majority of, him, of them didn't recognize who Jesus was. And in God's grace, he revealed to some blind people who Jesus actually was. The son of David. And because they know what that means and who that is, they are asking the son of David to have mercy on them. They recognize who Jesus was. He is God Almighty in the flesh. Takes us to, now that we know he was descended from David according to his flesh, now we proceed to know that he was also fully God, declared to be the Son of God. Romans 1, 4, it says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness. So this assigns deity, divinity to the person of Christ. He's not only man, but he must be the God-man. Why? Because in order to intercede for us, in order to save people, he needs to be fully divine and needs to be fully human. Theological term for that is the hypostatic union, how those two natures come and complete themselves in the person of Christ. Fully and completely human, fully and completely divine, the God-man. So in Jesus being the holy God and the perfect holy man is our advocate, the one who can make it right between a holy God who cannot relate to sinners if they approach to him, if they approach him on their own, but they need a mediator, one who perfectly will fulfill what the law requires. This is Jesus, God the Son, the second person in the Trinity. A quick reference to a couple of verses again in the Old Testament, Psalm 2 7, it says, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 89 27, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. A quick note on that word, firstborn. Many times the cults will say, oh, see, he was born, so he cannot be God. However, that term does not mean that he was actually born as in created, but rather it means that he is the one of preeminence, the one of highest ranking authority above all. So let us not be confused when we read that term and we think, oh, wait a minute, yeah, maybe the cults are right. No. It means that he's the one that sits on the throne. He's the one of preeminence. And then Isaiah 9.6 makes reference to Jesus as the mighty God. In those Old Testament 
prophecies are fulfilled in Matthew 3.17. Again, there's many passages, but we've got to pick at least one. Matthew 3.17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father declaring that Jesus is indeed His Son. The key here then is, did the hearers, did the contemporaries of Jesus and the apostles, did they know what Jesus meant when he himself assigned the title of either son of David or son of God? The people there, the audience that immediately listened to that, did they know what the apostles and what Jesus meant? Well, let us take a look. Because if Jesus was claiming to be more than a mere man, then he would be committing blasphemy. Let us see what a couple of passages tell us. John 10, 33, it says, And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. See that? John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So it is well established that the audience, the people that interacted with Jesus and the apostles, and that hated them for what they said, they knew what it meant when they referred to Jesus as the son of David or the son of God. They knew that if a human being apply that to himself, or they call him that, that that would be blasphemy, making themselves equal with God, and is punishable by death. So, as I've said before, if somebody ever tells you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. And they wanted to stone him for that. Because Jesus asked, for what good work do you stone me? Right, and we just read, they basically told him, oh, no, you've done many good things. You know, who, who doesn't want to feed the homeless and help the orphans and this and that? Everybody praises you for that. But the moment you claim exclusivity of Jesus, as he did, and as we do today, all of a sudden everybody's supposed, right? Because the exclusivity of Jesus implies that he is the Savior, the only way to God the Father. And therefore, division comes. That's why they were trying to stone him. Now, how did Jesus prove that he was who he says he, he is? Because after all, anybody could say it, right? I mean, there's been many false prophets, many false Christs, even to this day. Jesus proved what he said, proved who he said he was by the resurrection of the dead, by rising from the dead. As we see in our text, Romans 1.4, it says, According to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the verses in the Old Testament that was foretold was Psalm 16, verse 10. It says, For you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus fulfilled who he said he was tangibly, that is, people saw it, felt it, experienced it, and spiritually. For instance, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Tangibly, physically, visibly, he provided bread for thousands of people. They ate it, they saw it, they touched it physically, tangibly. Spiritually, he fulfills the life of his people 
by him becoming the source of their true nourishment. I am the bread of life. He showed it tangibly and spiritually. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Tangibly, physically, he opened up the eyes of the blind. Hence, making them see the light, that he is light. Spiritually, he shines the light of his truth in the hearts and souls of lost sinners to make them see the gospel for what it truly is. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. What did he do? He raised at least three people from the dead that we know of in Scripture. But more importantly, he raised himself from the dead. He told them, destroy this body and I will raise it back again on the third day. So that is how we know that when Jesus made claims, he validated them by the fact that he rose from the dead. And Paul the Apostle, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, if, there is no, if, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, he's like, we are to be pitied. We are to be just losers. My friends, that is the key difference between true Christianity and all the false religions and cults out there. They have non-verifiable claims. Christianity is not like so. It is falsifiable if it were to be falsified. And yet, the body of Jesus has not and will never be produced until he comes and shows himself to us. So all this has shown then that the good news were not so new in the sense that they were being presented for the first time. The good news, as Paul affirms in his introduction, were foretold in the Old Testament by the Holy Scriptures. So now we're going to see that accomplishment of this God-man, Jesus Christ. What is that? Romans 1.5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So let's break down a little bit what those things mean. Received grace. That's one of the things that is accomplished by the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, we have received unmerited favor. That's what grace means. When we realize that we've done wrong, when we realize that we went astray, and we should get what's coming to us. But God actually shows us grace. Right? Unmerited favor. That's one of the benefits of Jesus coming to this earth. Because... He fulfilled the moral law. If we trust in Him by faith, then His righteousness is granted to us because we have no righteousness. doesn't matter if we can point to the fact that we may be better than our neighbor or our co-worker. We're never going to be good enough. We need the righteousness of Christ to be attributed to us. Otherwise, we are lost. Jesus then is our substitute to fulfill the requirement of moral perfection in order to be reconciled to God. Paul was the recipient of that unmerited favor, and so are we if we have trusted in Christ. Received grace. Paul then says he's received apostleship. Obviously, in the case of Paul and the apostles, Christ selected them, called them, as we saw last week, 
to become apostles. By being called personally and by being witnesses of the risen Christ. Now us, we are called to be his children. Christ draws his select to himself. And when he calls us, at the appointed time, the effectual calling, you are coming because you're coming. Received apostleship, and we received adoption as sons. Now he says that this also brings about the obedience of faith. The faith proclaiming Christ must necessarily show itself in the act of obedience. True faith implies faith and obedience. Consider this quick illustration. There's two men. Both of them need a job. Both of them proclaim they have faith in God, that God will provide a job to them. Both of them pray nightly, penitently, with a contrite heart that the Lord would have mercy on them and provide a job for them. So far, they're on equal grounds. They're both the same. But here lies the difference in each of these faiths. The first man sits at home and wanders around each day, waiting for God to provide that job for him. While the second man proactively seeks, knocks, asks for jobs, goes out and puts out his resume, makes himself available, goes to the places to see if they could employ him. Not only that, but he's vigilant to practice, to hone in his skill in, the which, in which he's looking a job, to hire him. So that when the interview comes, he's ready and able to show them that he's capable of performing that job. Now the question is, which man has true faith, the first or the second? Similarly, the obedience of faith to the gospel is not faith in a generic God. It is not faith in a generic Jesus who would never offend anyone, who would never hurt a fly, who is weak and doesn't stand on the truth of who he is. No. Obedience of faith to the gospel means standing on the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. My friends, whoever has the wrong Jesus are lost, and they're on their way to hell. This is where the division of the true Jesus and the watered-down Jesus comes in. Many say, well, can we just, like, get along and... Be cool with everyone? No. Truth divides. And we ought to stand in that truth of who Jesus is. So that true faith then necessarily is proven by personal conduct, by godly fruit in one's life, if indeed we belong to the correct Jesus. The proof of genuine Christian faith is then in the works of the Christian in the boldness to proclaim Christ, and in obedience to the Word of God. Faith without works is dead. Now why? Why is this happening? Well, this is, as Paul says here, for the sake of His name among the nations. The showing of this true faith is not only an assurance, a seal, a proof of our salvation as we proclaim Christ, but it's ultimately done for the glory of God. 
just as we sang today, the song, O Greatest Our God, to proclaim His majesty to the, to the world, to the masses, to proclaim His mighty power. But this is ultimately done, not for us, but for the glory of God. Testify to everyone who the true God is, our triune God, Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so now we see what the message from Paul is going to be in the book of Romans, right? The message was proclaimed in the Old Testament. He gave us a quick snapshot of what that is. Now he's going to focus on who the recipients of that letter are. Romans 1, 6, it says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be called? Quick recap, right? Paul said that he was called to be an apostle. We studied it last week. In short, that means that the recipients of this letter are also called. God called those people to himself. God draws his children to himself. And when he calls them, they come. Just as when the shepherd calls his sheep, they listen. What did Jesus say in John 10, verse 27? It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So what does it mean to then belong to Christ? If you are called, and you are obeying, if you are indeed in Christ, that means that you belong to Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Again, as Paul explained, those terms that he's using is that those that belong to Christ have refused self-ownership. We don't belong to self, but rather we are slaves to Christ. And our purpose is then to do what our master tells us to do. Is there such thing as a slave who the master tells him to do something and he's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Doesn't make sense. So if we are true servants of Christ, we are to do His will. Servants of God means believing in the one who He has sent and living by obedience. So then, we ought to be thinking, am I called of God? Right? Do I belong? Do, are you called by God? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? There could be several answers here. Let me make a comment about several options here. Are you called of God? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? One answer could be, yes, I do. But, you know, I know that as a wandering sheep, I could go astray and I need to come back to the path. <clears throat> constantly reforming, constantly coming back to the right track. Like our car that needs alignment, right? It doesn't last forever. You've got to fix it so that it doesn't go astray. So, yes, I do. And I'm continually renewing my obedience. <clears throat> Second answer could be, yes, I belong to Christ, but you know that your heart is becoming calloused and hardened into more and more disobedience. That means that we can make a self-assessment, and if we are honest with ourselves, we can say, I belong to Christ, it definitely has changed me, but I know I'm in sin. I know I'm in sin. Wallowing in sin. My friends, if that's us today, the answer is repent. What are you waiting for? For God to spank you real hard so that you could wake up? What is it necessary for us to wake up? 
Thirdly, the honest unbeliever who says, you know what? Nah, I don't think I'm called and I know I don't belong to Christ. Like, I know that. Like, I'm not going to kid myself. If that's you, my friend, today, the message for you is do not harden your heart. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sin. Confess your sins to Christ. He will forgive you. He will give you a new heart, new desires, new passions, new priorities. He'll make you a new creation today. Trust in Him. Now, fourthly, this is a more elaborate one, and it's specifically important because this is where Paul was at, and this is a very dangerous one to be in. So as we look at this fourth possible answer, this is danger. Beware. This is when somebody thinks they belong to God, but you're actually an enemy of God. Right? Paul thought he was right with God. The religious of the religious. But yet he was unconverted. This is self-deceit. This is being blinded by your own sin into false assurance. Once saved, I was saved. Well, let me just go and sin away. What could happen? What could happen is that you're confirming that you're actually not saved. That's what could happen. My friends, that's heavy. You think you're a Christian, but you have continuously lived a life of sin and disobedience. No fruit. No desire to serve God. No desire to know God. No desire to fellowship with God's people. No desire to prioritize God and the things of God, of his church. In other words, if someone wanted to prosecute you for being a Christian, they couldn't because they couldn't find no evidence to convict you. My friends, to you, the message is also repent, escape the wrath of God that awaits you. Flee your false assurance and trust in Christ. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, in the good old King James Version, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. My friends, if you do not, if you do not know Christ, God does not love you. God is your enemy, and you are an enemy of God. But it doesn't end there. As Paul will tell us now in verse 7, Oh, but for those that do repent and have repented, there is great news. This is the good news for the bad people that the sermon is talking about. Romans 1.7 says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful. Now let us comment here. God has common grace on all, on all the creation. Everyone, relatively speaking, enjoys life. Everyone, relatively speaking, enjoys the joy of being with family, seeing a loved one, the benefits of having children, of having the comforts of this life. That's God's graciousness expressed in the common sense to all his creation. And in that sense, God is gracious to everyone. Because if we are alive, are alive today, 
Even if you're a non-Christian, that's a gift from God. That's common grace. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is making a very significant distinction. He says to those in Rome, everyone in Rome? No. Those who are loved by God and called to be saints, to those, Paul declares or reminds the saints in Rome that they are loved by God. That's wonderful news for those that were once rebels. These are called to be saints in Rome. These are people. These are the folks in the church. And Paul then pronounces a blessing upon them. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The children of God then are loved by God. They receive God's grace. They receive God's peace. Can we appreciate how relieving that is? Of knowing that there is a holy God who will fight and defeat all those that rejected him? Who is angry every day at the sinner? And yet that God has given me grace, which I don't deserve. That God has loved me and given his son for me so that I can be made right with him? Wow. Then we can realize, if we have that, our circumstance here temporarily doesn't ultimately matter. As important as those things are. If your parents' love has failed you, if your kids' love has failed you, if your friends' love has failed you, if your spouse's love has failed you, for some of us or for some of you, maybe you're like, yep. Yep, that's, yes, that's me. You're like, yeah, I have been let down. My friends, know this. There is one, there is that kind of love that will never fail you. The love that God has for his children. So much so that he gave his eternal son in order to adopt you as his child. He gave the most that he had to adopt you. And Paul says to the church in Rome, that's you. You who are loved by God. That God who is creator of heaven and earth. That God who is so holy that no man can see nor has seen. The God who cannot associate with sinners because he's so holy that if a sinner comes and tries to come with him without a mediator, will zap him. This is what the Old Testament shows us over and over. That God is holy. You cannot just approach him whatever way you want. That God has provided a son, Jesus, the righteous, the advocate, to be our substitute, who paid the debt for our sin, who lived the perfection that we can never attain. And because of him, Paul says, this is to you. You are loved of God. How amazing is that? So to those saints who Paul is writing, we now realize that this letter of the book of Romans is speaking to the church of God. 
This letter today speaks to Acts Reformed Church here in West Covina. You, my brethren, you are loved by God. And God is speaking to us through the book of Romans today to remind us of his faithfulness, of his gospel, so that we may turn to him today, either in repentance for the first time or in continual repentance in our sanctification. And we are to do that today, tomorrow, the next day. As we realize that we fall short. And when you realize that you fall short, let that be a reminder that you have a Savior. When you realize that you sinned once again, that we have a Savior, that we have an advocate. Because God loves us as His children. My friends, that is the good news that God has for bad people. But let me add this. We are no longer identified in our identity as bad people. We are saints. We are set apart for God. So therefore, although we are sinners, our identity in Christ is those that are called to be saints. When the enemy, when the devil comes and tries to convince you that you are evil and bad and dirty and a scumbag, which happens to me on a weekly basis, I can agree with the enemy and say, yeah, you're right. I am all those things. Yeah. But while I, would, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And therefore, I'm a saint. And from there, we are called to that obedience of the faith that has been given to us. So that that faith can prove itself in our conduct, in our character, in our everyday walking. Ultimately, not only for our assurance, but for the glory of God to all the nations. My friends, the letter to the book of Romans is for us today. May we realize that, and may we apply it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we have seen today, you have been gracious to us. Give us the spirit of those blind beggars, Lord, that recognize Jesus. The favor that was given to them to know who Jesus was. And the only response they could say is, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. May that be our cry this morning, Lord, that we turn to Jesus for mercy, for grace, so that he can give us what we don't deserve. That we realize that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we rejoice in the fact that that Savior is here. As we read today providentially in Psalm 53 verse 6 where it says, Oh, that salvation from Israel would come out of Zion. Lord, that has happened. The Lord Jesus has come as that Savior that the prophets of old longed for looked forward to 
May we realize the impact that now we can look back to it as something that occurred already. And trust in him. How we need you, Lord. May we lay all of our burdens at the foot of the cross today. So that we may feel the lightness of your yoke. And the joy of knowing that we are your children. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.